Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to the Comrade Cast. And today, I've got a very interesting episode lined up for you guys. Probably going to go on a lot of random tangents, personal stories, all kinds of wild places we're going to go. So today, as I teased earlier, I'm sure many people think of me as a very militant left-wing person. And yeah, that's right, I am pretty far left. And there are a lot of very left-wing issues that are important to me. However, today we're actually going to talk a little bit about issues where I depart from orthodox left-wing thinking. And then from that, I want to have a broader conversation about how you, if you're a left-wing person, can talk about these issues in a way that doesn't violate the core fundamentals of left-wing politics, doesn't make you feel like you're betraying your core beliefs or anything like that. There are definitely ways to disagree, and left-wing people disagree all the time. One thing that I've noticed that is very different from left-wing political circles and right-wing political circles is that left-wing people prefer to have their disagreements under the table. They don't want to have their dirty laundry aired publicly. They don't want to see, they don't want the broader public to see their infighting or anything like that. Right-wing people, on the other hand, don't seem to care at all. <laughs> They'll go to town on each other. They'll say like the most awful, vile things to one another. And then at the end of the day, they will fall in line with the winner type of thing. But left-wing people really don't want that display and they don't want that spectacle. So they generally try their best to keep disagreements on the down low, although it doesn't always happen. And today is a pretty good day and this week is a pretty good week to do this episode because we had some bombshell rulings from the Supreme Court come down. But before we get there, we're going to start with the areas where I have the least disagreement and then go to the areas where I have more disagreement. So let's start with the area I'm, I'm quote-unquote the wokest on, but still have some minor disagreements. And that is talking about pride and LGBTQ plus issues. Obviously, if you saw my episode, you guys know that this is a very big and important deal to me. This is one of my most important issues to talk about on the show. One of the reasons this issue is so important to me is because it has one of my hard lines where I can figure out if I can find common ground with you in terms of a political discussion. One of my hard lines is, do you believe that trans people exist and should have the same human rights and respect as everybody else? If you agree with that statement, there's a ton of common ground we can find. We can spend all day quibbling over pronouns and gender fluid theory and that kind of stuff. Because one of the things I noticed when I did my episode on Pride was that a lot of people, they're not really angry at trans people or gay people or anything like that. They are still in, remember when we did our episode about kind of the political timeline, they're still in this era of the silly politics. And they think like irregular pronouns like Zier and Zim and Zippy or whatever are mainstream in terms of left-wing ideology. Let me tell you guys, they are not mainstream in terms of left-wing ideology. I have spent a good portion, maybe even the majority of my life, traipsing around far left-wing circles. And never once has anybody ever asked me to use a pronoun that is outside of male, female, or gender neutral, which is they-them pronouns. So a lot of this stuff is really people going like, teehee, let's see how we can trigger the cons. But yeah, that's not really part of left-wing theory anymore. And the whole million different genders type of thing is not really part of left-wing theory. Where that kind of comes from is trying to ascertain 
the label that non-binary people want to go by. Because one of the things about non-binary people, I think people don't really understand, is that most of them think it's like someone who's like 50-50 masculine and feminine traits. Like they're just in that middle of the, the gender spectrum between masculine and feminine. And while that can be the case, sometimes being non-binary means being none of the above, right? You're off the binary, you're off the grid. And when you're off the grid, you're in uncharted territory, right? And that's where I think a lot of this feeling of making up all these different gender categories and pronouns comes from. However, in that time, this was probably five, 10 years ago that this thinking was more prevalent. In that time, what's happened is that people have realized that this isn't scalable as a political movement, right? If we have every like single non-binary person sheltered off into these small little gender groups, there's no way they can come together and actually come together as a political unit and advocate for their own rights. So if we're going to talk about complaints you have about the left wing, I'd rather you keep them inside of the area of actual mainstream left wing thinking, not what you think is actual left wing thinking based on what you've probably seen on some sort of right wing talk show. Because another thing that people will say is mainstream left wing thinking is identifying as different types of animals and stuff like that. This, I think, is just a misunderstanding of what being a furry is to people. And of course, if you look hard enough, you will find anything, right? I've seen Matt Walsh's crappy movie, What is a Woman? And in that movie, he like interviews a girl who thinks she's a wolf or whatever. So you can obviously find these people who exist, but then to come and frame them in a way that they are somehow mainstream thinking among the left, is extraordinarily disingenuous, is extraordinarily dishonest, and not a reflection of reality. Because guess what, guys? Men and women are the same species. We're not talking about moving out and transitioning species or anything like that. And when it comes to furries, it's a role-play thing, people. And one of the things that like frustrates me again about this discourse is how they've obviously just misinterpreted what furries are and what their culture is and use that to try and gain political points like it's just a role play thing everybody like calm down it's just something people do to have fun it's not how they actually identify in their everyday lives i'm sure if you went to an area where there's lots of furries and they're in their gear and you ask them do you actually identify as this i'm sure there are some people who are like super hardcore role playing that would say yes just like if you went to a Civil War enactment and asked one of the Civil War enactors, what year is it? And they would go, oh, it's 1863 and blah, blah, blah. They're just really playing the role type of thing. That person obviously doesn't think it's actually 1863 and they're in the Confederate Army. Anyway, so yeah, the whole pronoun thing, the whole a million genders thing, not mainstream left-wing thinking anymore. These strands of philosophical thought have evolved forward since then. And... You know, I'll be real with you guys, if someone ever came to me and asked me to use, like, Z or Z pronouns, I'd struggle. I'd struggle to take them seriously. When it comes to pronouns, I want to take a little digression. This is something I've been wanting to explore with you guys and just kind of see where it leads to. So, obviously, we spend a lot of time spending political capital and blood around pronouns here, you know, in English-speaking countries, but... There are multiple languages in the world, and all of these languages treat pronouns differently, and they have various levels of importance and information embedded within them. And I thought it would be an interesting little experiment just to show people who 
may only speak English, how pronouns are used in some other different languages. As many of you guys know, I love languages. I like to study languages. I find them endlessly fascinating. And the two languages that I really focus on, because I personally believe if you didn't grow up in a place like Europe where you're surrounded by multiple languages at a time, if you're trying to learn languages as an adult, there's really only a handful that you can actually learn consistently well and become consistently skilled in. So for me, the two main languages that I've focused on in my life, Japanese and Russian, and both these languages treat pronouns in a very different way from how English does. So let's start with Russian. So the Russian language uses what's called a case system to convey information and meaning. In English, we don't really have a parallel to this. The only case we really have is a possessive case. For example, this is comrade's pen, right? The apostrophe S yes, donates possession. So in a similar sense in Russian, you're changing the end of the word to convey some sort of information. And Russian has a case which does a, a similar thing to what the apostrophe S yes does in English, although not exactly the same. Russian itself has six different cases, and this is a similar system to many different languages in Eastern Europe. For example, Polish has a case system, Ukrainian has a case system. I believe Czech also has a case system. I'm not 100% sure. I'm sure someone can, can fill me in. I think Croatian, Bulgarian. I don't believe Romanian does because they're in a different sort of language class than the rest of the Slavic languages. And the same with Hungarian. It's a different language family. Anyway, so Russian has six. I think Finnish has more. I think they have like 12 or something. They, they're a very hard language, <laughs> Finnish is. Anyway, I digress. So there's six different cases, and they all convey different bits of information. So here's one. I'll just go over it like very quickly. We're not going to spend a million years giving you the Russian grammar lesson. If you guys want a Russian grammar lesson, let me know. I can, I can happily oblige if you guys want me to delve into these kind of concepts a little bit more deeply. But anyway, dative case, it's fine. What it usually denounces when you're giving something to someone or you are addressing someone in speech. And then we can go on. I'm, again, another one here. The instrumental case, for example, it's used when you're using something for a purpose, like a tool. You're writing with a pen. You would use the instrumental case. So the important part for this discussion here is that pronouns actually have to be conjugated based on the case that you're using. So when you're speaking in Russian, not only do you have to be cognizant of the pronouns that you're using, whether they, those are first person, I, I, he, I, me, myself, that kind of thing, whether it's second person, whether you, you, yours, that type of thing, and then third person, he, him, they, them, we, ours, that sort of stuff. All pronouns thus need to be conjugated both based on their case and their gender. And here's a little fun fact that I like to use to needle people who talk about the great conservative Russian bastion or whatever, last standing bastion of Western civilization. The thing about Russian is that, so you, you, you guys understand how some languages are gendered. Big ones that come to mind are the Romantic languages, French, Spanish, Italian, etc. Well, Russian is a gendered language as well. However, in Russian, there are three genders. There is male, there is female, and then there is neutral. So in Russian, there are actually three genders. There's male, female, 
and neutral. And not only that, there's a quote-unquote gender fluid sign, which is the Miyaki Snack here. You can see it looks like the little bee. Let's see if I can get my mouse over here. This one here. That's the Miyaki Snack and its cousin, the Tro di Snack, means the soft sign or the hard sign. It shows you how to pronounce certain letters at the end of a word. In any case, if it's got a Miyaki Snack, it can be either masculine or feminine. It could be either or. I just always think it's funny to tell them that Russian has three genders and, and see how they respond to that. So this leads me to what I was building up to this entire time. Right here, I have before you a Russian pronoun conjugation graph. And if you guys have studied Russian or planning to study Russian, stuff like this is going to be embedded into your brain. So at the top here, you can see the various cases of the Russian language. Normative, genitive, dative, accusative, instrumental, and prepositional. And then, of course, you have your actual pronouns. Masculine, feminine, neutral, and plural. All of them must be conjugated depending, of course, on the sentence and the case being used. And you'll also see that Russian has two different uses for your. One, dvoi, is the informal and then Vash is the formal one. Long story short, what I'm trying to tell you guys here is that for Russians, in addition to telling you the gender of something, pronouns have more information actually embedded them in them. And they can tell you what is actually happening to that person at a glance just by looking at the, the case that the pronoun is in. And while this is extremely complex at first, what it does allow you to do and what allows Russian speakers to do is very easily ascertain. It allows you to very easily ascertain information within the sentence without necessarily having to read the full thing. It also allows you to make shorter and more concise sentences with less words. And this is part of the reason why Russian is actually preferred. I don't know if it's still the same given the war situation, but Russian was generally preferred on the International Space Station just because it's a more concise language than English is. So long story short, for Russian speakers, pronouns actually have more information and they're more valuable. And they also are a fucking bitch to learn. And now let's look at Japanese because in Japanese, it's the opposite story. All right, so let's move into some Japanese pronouns. And the thing, and this is from Japanese Pod 101, I believe. And holy crap, they've done an amazing job in just breaking down exactly what I mean and how I wanted to talk about this. In Japanese, the thing is, is that pronouns in general are very rarely used because they're considered to be almost rude and impolite because generally speaking, because generally speaking, if you know that person, you're always going to want to use their name. Because in Japanese culture, in Japanese history, and if you guys are like anime files like I am, you'll probably have noticed this theme that in Japanese culture, your name is extremely powerful. It's extremely meaningful to you and to that person. I guess you could almost say their quote-unquote soul is encased in their name. But you, for example, you'll notice this in Japanese anime, how powerful names are and how powerful names can be. Just two examples from really popular ones. Death Note, obviously. You need someone's name and face, name being a main component, in order to kill that person. So it's pretty clear that names have some sort of power and should be kept secret at all costs. In fact, L directly says this 
to the Japanese investigators when giving them their fake identities. He basically says your names have power and you need to protect them. Another example of this is in Spirited Away when Yubaba is getting Chihiro to sign her work contract. She steals literal characters of her name and ends up giving her the name Sen, which is like the leftover name from the characters that she took from her. And Haku mentions a similar thing that part of the way Yubaba controls people is basically by stealing parts of their name and holding it secret and holding it against them so they don't know what their real name is. All of this is to say is that there's a very clear cultural expectation in Japanese that if you know that person's name, you should probably use it and treat it with a certain degree of respect and admiration. For example, here in Western culture, if someone's talking to me and they continually like use my name, sometimes, and I think maybe a lot of you guys are the same, I find it off-putting, like kind of creepy, like comes off like this weird sales tactic. It's like, why do you keep using my name over and over and over again? Why don't you use you or yours or whatever? Whereas if you were to do that in Japanese, it would be extremely rude to that person. So let's go over just very briefly what some pronouns in Japanese look like, what you have in front of you. These are first person pronouns that you may have heard if you forget our anime file. The first one they have is Watakushi, which I've almost never heard in my life. It's extremely rare. It's like what you'd say in like a job interview or some shit. Watashi, you may have heard the main, I guess you would say, first person pronoun. Atashi is a female, just dropping a Y. Boku is a male. And I personally, whenever I'm speaking Japanese, I like to use ore. That's my favorite one, mainly because I watch too many anime. And that's pretty much how all Japanese men in anime refer to themselves is with ore. And then if you go into your second person pronouns, these are actually, by and large, extremely rude to use unless you know you're talking to your friend or your significant other but if you were to say use a lot of these with your boss or maybe just some person you met on the street yeah it would not end very well so if you type you into google what you'll probably get is anata which is again not very it not very widely used usually only in the only times i really hear it is like in times of like maybe distress when someone is trying to like point to somebody and get their attention or in like times when it's like a wife like it's like a pet name it's a good pet name for a husband i've heard it used that way before kimi is usually if i'm going to use a second person pronoun kimi is my favorite one to use a little bit softer though it does denote that you are higher above them but i just think it sounds nicer then this is another one of my favorites oh my you also probably hear this one if you listen to a lot of anime. It's rude. It's like rude to use with somebody, but a lot of guys use it when like razzing each other. And then these other ones I've actually never heard. Ka Kasama says it's very rude and hostile. Never heard this one. And Anta, never heard it. And it's just a shortened version of Anata. But here is what we get into what I wanted to talk about. And how do you say he slash she in Japanese? The answer is they do exist. But, for example, they're almost never, ever used. Kare and kanajo are usually used to refer more to, like, your boyfriend or your girlfriend than he or she. And this is exactly what I was going to say to you, pretty much word for word. But, obviously, they put it right here, is that native Japanese people prefer to use either the person's name to describe them or anohito, 
which is that person. And of course, that doesn't necessarily, it's keto is a not a gendered term, right? So it doesn't indicate gender. So usually when people are talking to one another, they're going to try and use their name. But if they have to point to somebody, they're going to say alohito, which doesn't necessarily mean man or woman. Although there are instances where I have heard that, like ano otoko, that man, ano onna, that woman. It's just not as common as anohito. So anyway, the takeaway here is that pronouns are not important in Japanese. In fact, most of the time they can be outright insulting depending on the context that you're using them. And if you're speaking Japanese, you want to either use kind of gendered language or non-gendered language to refer to people you might not know, or if you, or if you know them, just use their name, just use their name. And honestly, this is becoming my default status when talking to people. Obviously, I'm not going to repeat their name over and over and over and over again, like, like I said, in that creepy kind of fashion. But generally speaking, if I don't know someone's pronouns definitively, I'm, but I do know their name, I'm just going to use their name to, to refer to them because it's pretty tough to be offended when you're using someone's preferred name. Anyway, I, I guess the whole point here is I, I find the kind of fight around pronouns to be very interesting in a linguistic sense, especially when I compare and contrast them to other languages and how they treat pronouns. The one thing I always like to remember when talking about language and discussing things in a linguistic sense is that there are so many different ways that we can convey the same thing in reality. And sometimes it's nice to remind ourselves of that because not everybody will see the world in the same way as we do. Anyway, back to our regular scheduled program. I thought that would be a fun little exercise for everyone. But now I want to get into what I would guess is my major disagreement with the pride community. And I wouldn't say this is representative of the whole LGBTQ plus community, but definitely sort of the, the pride community and their antagonism towards law enforcement. And as many of you probably know that that is what my, my profession is, is in law enforcement. I don't like to talk about it too much, not only because it has a lot of private stuff surrounding it, but also because it's not my identity, right? I think one of the worst things you can do if you're in a job where you have to wear a uniform is like wear that uniform mentally all the time. That is when you get like people that are mentally unstable. They can't really connect with other people and, and civilians very much anymore. That's the dark road that you go down, I think, or it starts to happen when you really identify as a law enforcement official all day, every day. That's not me. That's not my, it's not my life. It's a way to pay the bills and it's not who I am at the end of the day. And it's not who I identify as the end of the day. And the only times I really like to talk about it publicly is times when it may inform a subject that we're talking about on the show. In instances where I might be able to bring a little bit more personal expertise and experience to something, that's when I might talk about it. But usually it's not an important part of who I am. Like I said, it's not my identity, and usually I like to keep things pretty private. This is an issue that has affected me personally, because when it comes to the amount of abuse I've gotten from a political faction, there's no question that I've gotten 1,000 times more abuse from the right than anywhere else. You talk about some of this stuff that I talk about, socialism, you talk about being pro-trans, being pro-gay rights, 
people will come, they'll say all kinds of crazy shit, they'll threaten to kill you, threaten to kill your family, dehumanize you, all that good stuff. And so this whole idea of the right being the really tolerant ones that are accepting of people, yeah, definitely have not ever experienced any of that. So yeah, we'll leave that in delusional land. But when it comes to, I, I wouldn't even say like political abuse, that's way more than what it is. It's more just like the cold shoulder type of thing. But when it comes to disrespect or cold shoulder or whatever you want to say from the left, the only time I've ever experienced anything is in reference to my profession. And I do understand where the trauma comes from, from the LGBTQ plus community, where the, the friction is between them and law enforcement because they haven't exactly been treated the best in the past. And we're not talking about 50 years ago. We're talking about you know, 30 years ago, so relatively recent past. That being said, though, a lot of this stuff happened when I was a literal baby, right? And there is a whole, there's a whole nother culture and group of people who are coming into law enforcement right now and are wanting to bury the hatchet and wanting to reconcile on this issue. And I do think it will come. It's not something that is going to last forever. Particularly the people who I feel the worst for are LGBTQ plus officers. They are put in, I think, maybe put in the worst position of all, because let me tell you, they do exist. <laughs> I've met them. I've met their husbands. I've met their wives. They're exemplary people, and they deserve to be represented within their own community just as much as anybody else. Yeah, I do think it's time to bury the hatchet. And not only that, if we can move past this issue, I think it would go a long way into alleviating a lot of the criticisms people have towards pride, because that was one of the main ones which I experienced when I did my episode. And it's, it makes sense again, because it is something that has affected me personally. But here's the thing you guys need to remember, right? Just because someone on the left has been mean to me one time in the distant past type of thing. That doesn't mean I change my political outlook. That doesn't mean I change what's valuable to me. It doesn't change what is important to me and what I fight for. So before we move on, I do want to say one quick thing here in reference to the last episode that I don't think I articulated very well and something that while we're on this topic, my personal experience has informed my worldview in this aspect which is that working in law enforcement, I have seen a lot of terrible people with a lot of terrible crimes levied against them of all different types and groups of people out there. We're talking any conceivable type of group you can imagine. You're talking about gay, black, Latino, Asian, native, Arabic, Indian, male, female, gay, straight, trans, anything in between, because bad individuals and bad people can exist within any community. And nobody on the left is ever saying that bad people don't exist within the LGBTQ plus community. What we are saying though, and what our issue is, is that as I just mentioned to you, there are bad people in every single group. Yet when I list, I think all of those identifiers, I think a lot of people will focus in on one and really laser pinpoint on one and say that bad, that bad actions within that one small group is for whatever reason, universalized to everybody. And that 
is the real issue that why, because a lot of the arguments I heard against pride are again, anecdotal stories. Like I saw a gay person have sex in the street in front of a kid, stuff like that. Even if we were to accept them as true, which let's be fair, they're pretty dubious claims at best. But even if we were to accept them as true, why then are those actions of those individuals then universalized to the larger pride community when we don't do this with any other group of people? Actually, I would say that's not true because we do do this with other marginalized groups of people. However, non-marginalized groups seem to get this protection where we label the individual as being dysfunctional rather than the community. So I guess I want you to ask yourself that why, when you see someone from the pride community doing something bad, do you then universalize that to the pride community as a whole? Could the reason you're doing that be because of your own internal perceived biases? Maybe it might be something to consider. All right, so let's get into the big news that has happened since we last convened. And again, this is the perfect thing to talk about for this episode, which is that the Supreme Court overturns race-based college admissions, otherwise known as affirmative action. Also, they overturned the student debt relief, which I am vehemently against. I think that that is a crazy ruling. The idea that the Supreme Court can tell the federal government how it can spend its money. I don't think it has any real precedence in the past and seems like pretty clear judicial overreach. That being said, though, when it comes to this particular issue, I have a very difficult time in disagreeing with this ruling. And the reason isn't because racism doesn't exist or anything like that. That's total nonsense. The reason I have difficulty mustering up a lot of passion and anger for the overturning of affirmative action is because I've always believed race-based solutions are inherently divisive. In some cases, they may be necessary. We should always try and strive for class-based solutions because they don't have that divisive connotation on the broader public. Because there's no question that race-based policy of any type is going to be divisive. Because when you're talking about something that people cannot change, people tend to be a little bit upset about that, or at least in theory, your class is something that can be changed. So people tend to be more accepting of sort of class-based solutions. But the thing about affirmative action, particularly when it's race-based, like we're talking about now, is that you can enact those policies and people will accept them during times where things are going well for everybody, except maybe a small group who are struggling in the broader context of society. However, in the era that we live right now, everyone is struggling. Everyone is worried about the future. Everyone is pessimistic about what's going to happen. And just about everybody thinks that things are going to get worse before they get better. And in that kind of political context, bringing, if you're bringing forth race-based affirmative action, that to me is potentially dangerous because it has the very real capacity to radicalize people. Because when things are going bad and they see other people getting things that, at least in their mind, that they perceive that they don't deserve, obviously this is what they think in their head, they are going to lose their freaking minds. And they are going to start supporting politicians who either want to get rid of affirmative action or basically want to go back even further to some sort of 
race-based affirmative action in favor of white people. Plus, there are many different ways that we can accomplish the same things that affirmative action does just without using kind of race-based, in this case, college admissions. The one thing, though, that the right is definitely not being very understanding of the left's argument around affirmative action and why they still continue to argue for it, because their argument is that it, it doesn't take away from white people or Asian people or, or whatever else. All that it does is it stops racist people from being able to enact racist policies underneath the table. So they have that protection, which prevents it from happening. And by removing that protection, you're, of course, opening the door to those kind of racist policies being able to be enacted once again. And that is a very fair argument, and conservatives don't really have an answer for how we're going to prevent that. But at least for now, it will take some time for those policies to really be enacted on a larger and broader scale. It's going to take some time before they can start actually admitting people and getting enough people to be in the race-based categories that they want, if you understand what I'm saying. So that kind of the statistics based on affirmative action will probably stay in place for five, ten years. And then as time goes on from this ruling, what will probably end up happening is that things will go back to a demographics that they looked like before affirmative action was installed. The thing is, like when the time comes, we'll probably just do the same thing over again. It's like a it's a very band-aid solution, in my opinion, the much bigger solutions are to try and tackle the underlying societal and systemic problems which cause people in areas that are predominantly black or Latino to not have the same opportunity as other places and to suffer in far greater ways than people who are not in those communities. So when it comes to affirmative action, at least for the near term, I think this is one that we can let die for now and let go for now and focus our political efforts on other issues which may be more pressing at this current moment. So let it die. This is not the battlefield I think that is for us right now and it's not the battlefield that I think that we can gain the kind of victories, political victories that we need. So rest in peace, affirmative action. I do think that you did your job for when we needed you, but right now we can retire you. But I do think there may come a point when we will need to consider affirmative action once again in the future. So now let's go into a disagreement that I had during the pandemic with a lot of my left-wing colleagues. However, has now since then really dissipated because these concerns by and large have now moved on to other ones. And thankfully, it seems like this pandemic, fingers crossed, this is not fingers crossed. I don't know what the fuck this is but it's what I'm going with anyway. My fingers crossed that it's over and we're done. So when it came to this pandemic, I had differences of opinion, mainly around vaccine mandates. When it came to countries wanting vaccine mandates, nothing you can do about that. Countries have wanted vaccine mandates for all kinds of things since the beginning of time. And quite frankly, there's not a lot we can do when you're going into another country. And whatever rules they want to set is kind of like we have to go with it type of thing. Like, honestly, if they wanted us to stand on our heads and sing the national anthem before they let us in, they could do that if they wanted to. But when it came to employment vaccine mandates, I was much more skeptical because 
we're talking about something, at least in our capitalist society, that is pretty much a necessity to survive. And when you're putting that in danger for somebody, I think you have to have a very, very good reason to do that. And not only that, I don't like the idea of giving companies, businesses, employers that amount of power over people. Generally speaking, the less amount of control businesses and companies have over their employees, the happier I am. So not only did I not like giving too much power to these entities, which I thought would misuse them, I also didn't like the, I guess you can say like a societal use of force. For me personally, I never like to use force with people under any circumstances unless this is my last resort. This is, I've exhausted all other options. Force is what's necessary because when using force in any kind of circumstance, not only is it what's difficult because <laughs> exerting force onto someone is not an easy task. And then B, it's going to create backlash. That person is going to resist and fight back. And that can lead to more damaging results. And that's exactly what happened. It created a backlash, which ended up doing a lot of damage. Ultimately, though, those kind of things and those kind of considerations went by the wayside now that we are in the time that we're in. And thankfully, I was worried that this was going to be like a permanent thing that people would want forever. Fortunately, I was very wrong about that. So I'm not sure if the use of force to mandate vaccines was necessary at the time. Uh, the results do at least show that we were able to escape this pandemic with less deaths than other pandemics in human history. So there may be something to say for that. However, even in that case, I'm not sure that the use of force was necessary. But where I had my most vehement disagreements was with the vaccine passport system, which I just thought was like a nightmare waiting to happen. Just a nightmare waiting to, to be unleashed. Because I was immediately afraid that people would jump on this and use it for nefarious purposes to block people that they just didn't want to have in their place of businesses because they didn't like them for one reason. Maybe it might be their skin color. Who knows? And personally, I think, again, we should give businesses as little power as possible. And right now in our capitalist society, one of the primary methods of power that we still have is how we spend our money. And it's like, now you're trying to take that away from us. You're trying to tell me where I can and can't spend my money. It's like, you're, yeah, you're taking away like the last freedom in the capitalist system that we have left. This happened before the show. And I had a lot of disagreements with a lot of people around public policy in regards to the pandemic. But again, and thankfully, some of the things I felt were right and I stand by and some of the things I was definitely wrong on. But that being said, I think that by and large, we've been able to move past it. But during this time, I felt a little bit isolated for sure. And I'm sure most people know that, yeah, I got the vaccine, was happy to get the vaccine. I got it early because I was one of the first people that was eligible in like the first wave to get it because of my job. And yeah, obviously don't regret it. Didn't have any side effects. I was sick for one day when I got the first one. I was really sick. We've everything had been fine since then. Didn't grow a third arm. My wife and I have had a kid since we've both been vaccinated and stuff like that. Didn't affect our pregnancy or bits down there. Nothing like that. So obviously it all turned out okay. And then when it comes to, and then when it comes to race-based policy in general, 
there are definitely some people on the left who are far too sensitive about race, and they bring it deeper into the equation than it needs to be brought into. Obviously, race is an important factor that we must consider, but it isn't the end-all, be-all factor out there. Generally speaking, any kind of race-based policy I'm vehemently opposed to. Not only do I think that, generally speaking, there are much more effective ways to accomplish the same things we want politically, that when you go down the road of race-based policies, you are opening up a very dangerous door to a lot of backlash and division. Particularly if you have some sort of race-based policy where you're excluding people based on their race, or this can be gender as well, very vehemently against that. Because when you do something like that, not only are you really going against, in my opinion, what the spirit of left-wing politics is, you are also, again, opening the door to a huge amount of radicalization. Because what will happen is that reactionaries will jump on this this little the section, for example, maybe it's a student dorm or student area where they say, like, no white people are allowed. Reactionaries will jump on this and they will amplify it everywhere. People will think that this is a very prominent state of affairs. Because let's be real, excluding people from places based on their race is a reactionary mindset, and it needs to be crushed, especially within left-wing circles. So for those of you who may not be familiar with the term reactionary, reactionary is a left-wing, I guess, slam term, that if you're in a lot of left-wing circles and someone calls you a reactionary, they're insulting you type of thing. And what a reactionary is, is somebody who wants to take society backwards to a previous time something which is very much so associated with right-wing and, in many cases, fascistic politics. And then you have a conservative who wants to keep the status quo. You have liberal people who want to make some minor changes around the edges of society. Then you have someone like me who I would classify as a radical who wants vast and broad changes in society to bring it up to date with the crises that we're going to be facing in the 21st century. So to me, if you are trying to advocate for some sort of racially exclusionist policy, that is inherently reactionary. So now let's move into what I would say is my biggest disagreement with how the left deals with certain issues of our time, and that is the environment. And my disagreements aren't about the actual science of climate change. It's very clear something's happening. It's very clear that we have an impact on it, and it's very clear that we should do what we can about it to mitigate it. It may be beyond our technical capacities at this time, but we should be doing whatever we can. My main issue is how the left presents a lot of its arguments around climate change and the strategies that we use to talk about climate change and get political and policy objectives actually enacted. But before I begin, let me tell you guys that in a lifetime in left-wing political circles, I have noticed that there are two types of environmentalists. The first type environmentalist is what I would consider myself to be, which is the progressive environmentalist, which is someone who understands that climate change is happening, we need to combat it, but at the same time, this needs to happen in tandem with human progress, and human progress must continue to happen but it must be in a sustainable fashion. And then you have what I would call the hippy-dippy, no offense to hippies, because I know I've got some that watch the show, but I would call it the hippy-dippy environmentalists. And for them, all 
human development and all human progress is bad. And there's kind of a, a feeling that we should revert ourselves to a more primitivistic time with primitivistic technologies in order to combat climate change. And for me, I have a lot of disagreements with that particular worldview, just because to me, it seems like misanthropic, right? Like one of, I think, the fundamental left-wing values that ties together a lot of left-wing movements is a belief in the power of people and a belief in the power of humanity and the amount of good that we can do when we work together collectively. And I've always, like I said, felt this attitude, this sort of wanting to stand against all human development. I've always felt it to be inherently misanthropic. My comeback video, I talked a lot about synthesis and how we need to have like a, a synthesis between kind of more political ideas. And yes, I still believe that. Now, I almost think that the whole theme, if we are to survive at least as a species, of humanity for the 21st century should be synthesis, should be us learning to work together and synthesize ourselves with nature and our environment and the world around us. This doesn't mean destroy nature and this doesn't mean subservient ourselves. It means building up our systems in a way that nature and humanity can exist prosperously and peacefully side by side. Maybe this is, again, getting too spiritual, but I've always believed that nature is fundamentally still on our side. Nature wants us to succeed and nature wants us to survive and nature wants us to thrive. Because if it didn't, it probably would have kicked us off by now already. So I do think that nature is rooting for us still and wants us to do okay, but doesn't want us to destroy it in the process, <laughs> I think is fair. So there is definitely that kind of attitude, which I, I disagree with. Like I said, that we, we can't have any further development or we need to roll back human development in order to combat climate change. Yeah, not my jam. So I have disagreements around that kind of rhetoric. And then another type of rhetoric I have disagreements around is, I guess, in some ways, like the hyperbolic rhetoric surrounding climate change. For example, back when I was a kid, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I would remember in school, they would talk about the impacts of climate change by the time I was the age that I'm now. And the thing is, like, a lot of those impacts have happened. The thing that at the time that wasn't really conveyed is that these type of scenarios that they're working off of are worst case scenarios. So it looks like we've managed to avoid the worst case scenarios when it comes to climate change. But the issue when you come in and you're treating these worst case scenarios like they're definitely going to happen, when they don't happen in the manner that you say they are, people are going to be more skeptical going into the future. In the same way that if you say the sky is falling or the world's going to end in 10 years and then it doesn't, people aren't going to believe you the next time you say that the world is going to end in 10 years. So while, yes, we have escaped those worst case scenarios, things are still happening and we still need to combat it. The only issue is now that I feel there are people who are more skeptical because they have seen the prognosis of these world-ending environmental catastrophes come and go. Whereas it's not really a stick of dynamite, right, that's just going to explode all over the world at once. It's a slow burn that's going to affect certain parts of the world more and more voraciously than other parts and at different times. So I do worry that our hyperbolic rhetoric in order to try and get people to focus on climate change and take climate change seriously 
may have done some long-term damage. And here's the thing. If the world is really going to end in, in 10 years due to climate change, knowing what I know about human nature, we're fucked. It's over. We're done. Like, there's almost no point in trying to change things that quickly without some sort of technological breakthrough because it's just not the way humans are going to do. And the fact of the matter is, I feel like most people, if you tell them, like, we've got 10 years to live unless we vastly cut down on all of these luxuries that we've come to grow accustomed to, what a sizable amount of people are going to say, F it, I'm just going to ride that bomb to the ground and have a good hedonistic time while I'm doing it type of thing. So those are my broad sort of disagreements, I would say. And then I have some smaller types of disagreements that mainly come in the form of strategy and policy choices when it comes to our conversation around environmental policies and which will be the most effective. So for example, the number one creator of carbon emissions right now is logistics. So moving things around the world from point A to point B. We live in a globalized world. We get all our trinkets from China, for example, right? And this is something that uh, Tim Pool actually said. And I looked into this and he was 100% right. I can give credit where credit is due. <laughs> but anyway, he talked about how, because he's a big skateboarder, right? I'm not, I'm not a huge skateboarder or anything like that. But he was talking about how a lot of wood for skateboards is taken from here in my old stomping ground of British Columbia. So they're harvested here. And then they get shipped across the ocean to China to get manufactured into a skateboard. And then the skateboard gets sent across from China, across the Pacific Ocean, back to Vancouver, where it is then sold or potentially distributed to another skate shop somewhere else in Canada or the United States. Long story short here, that is a lot of carbon emissions generated just for a skateboard. And obviously, it's, it's not like the big tanker. <laughs> the big tanker's got like one skateboard on it, and then that's it. And he's just making the, the journey across with a singular skateboard. That, you know, yes, obviously these tankers have a lot of different goods on them. And the way they actually work, funnily enough, is like these tankers are dialed in at this point. Like they work on like a circuit system. So it's never like a point A to point B type of journey almost. It's like, okay, I'm going to stop in Hong Kong. I'm going to drop these goods off. I'm going to pick up these goods. Then our next stop is Tokyo, where we're going to drop this off and do this. And then we're going to move to across the ocean. We're going to move to Vancouver or we're going to unload this portion and reload this portion. So it's never like a full unloading everything and then reloading everything right there. Everything is happening in portions, right? It's like a circuit that the tanker is making to its various stops. And all along the way, they're dropping off and picking up goods. So anyway, so yeah, I, I digress. It's not just the one skateboard, but still, that is a huge amount of carbon emissions to create something which could be created right in Canada and create jobs in Canada and be better for the environment. So to me, this is like a win-win-win in terms of a policy proposition. When we as the left talk about how we want to bring forth environmental policy, one of my biggest complaints is like, I feel like we're not putting our best foot forward and our best arguments forward and, not and we're not putting our best arguments which actually have potential to unify people around what we want to achieve. Because when you talk about something like this, like not only do people realize that obviously we're not shipping these goods back and forth, we're saving a lot of carbon emissions, but if we keep these jobs at home, 
we're creating more jobs, we're creating a more stable economy at home, which ultimately has the benefit of increasing everybody's standard of living in the area. So again, it's a huge win-win-win as far as I'm concerned. Maybe it's even win-win-win-win. That is a tier above. That's the godlike tier of everybody winning. And obviously skateboards aren't the only one. There are innumerable goods that we can start to move to produce here at home in a more environmentally sustainable way. So I think we need to talk about different strategies, again, to bring people on board. One thing I think that discourse around environmental policy should be a lot more unifying than it really is because it is something that does affect us all. And I think at the end of the day, we all want to have clean air to breathe and clean water to drink. I think we can all at least agree on that fundamental point. But for example, one thing that here in Canada, the Liberal Party will, will talk about is the carbon tax, which in my opinion is a pretty ineffective tool in terms of eliminating emissions. There are plenty of other countries which have tried the carbon tax and it hasn't been effective in terms of actually reducing carbon emissions. So as far as I'm concerned, the evidence is pretty clear that this is not an effective public policy. And also it's very divisive politically. So maybe we should think about some other things that we can do <laughs> and, and other tracks that we can go down, like I said, in order to bring people together on this issue. And sometimes this is actually a common issue with the left is that we're not putting our best foot forward on a lot of issues and not putting our best arguments out there. And it's weird to me sometimes, but I, and I think it also maybe benefits to some perception of being like the left being kind of like kooky and out there and what have you. So yeah, there are definitely issues that I think we can be flexible on. One of the reasons why I'm less flexible on say like LGBTQ plus issues, because we're talking about people's human rights and identity and those, I guess, in my opinion, are less debatable things. But when it comes to how to best implement effective policy that will combat climate change, there is a lot more flexibility and discussion we can have. So I think that's going to bring us to the end of our discussion here. In fact, I think that's going to bring us to the end of issues that I disagree with the left on by and large. And we all know that El Presidente was right about this at the end of the day, that we know there are problems. In fact, there are always going to be problems. But at the end of the day, we all know who's to blame. It's the environmentalists. So let's go into the final part of our episode. And I didn't know what to put in the background. So I'm just like, oh, here's a cool music video. Lots of crazy shit happening. <laughs> so anyway, the last part about the video, like I said, is to talk about how to talk and disagree with left-wing people without undermining sort of the core solidarity and that core foundation of what we're trying to achieve. And I hope that one of the ways that I did that today, you may have noticed when we were having our conversation, which is that to talk about things that you may disagree with, but when you do, you are bringing forth another solution, which will be in tandem with left-wing values and also try and achieve the same things that we're trying to achieve on a political level. For example, when we talked about the environment, one of the things that I proposed was, for example, to find ways to decrease our logistical chain and decrease the amount of weight that we're moving products around the world, which will make a huge impact in reducing the amount of carbon in the air. 
And again, that is a solution which is in tandem left-wing values on a number of levels, but also, in my opinion, has the potential to unite people in broader agreement. For example, when it comes to affirmative action, one of the things I mentioned is that, by and large, class-based, at least in my opinion, class-based solutions to these issues are more effective than race-based ones and also have the benefit of not being divisive for many people. Part of the reason, again, that I mentioned people don't like race-based solutions is because it's something that you can't really change, but it's seen as a permanent marker of you. For example, in my opinion, moving to class-based affirmative action is much more beneficial. And the reason is because not only do you lose a lot of that divisive rhetoric, but you also open up the pool of people who need that assistance to a much wider degree, in my opinion. For example, people have no issue with seeing African-American kids who grow up in inner cities get the attention and the care and, I guess you could say, the affirmative action that they need because most people understand that they grew up in an extremely difficult circumstance with opportunities not exactly abounding everywhere. So we might need to use some affirmative action to pull that person out of that quagmire. Whereas, for example, you give affirmative action to an African-American family who is middle class type of thing, people will accept that to a much lesser degree because they'll say, I'm middle class, why aren't I getting this assistance? The only thing which separates me and them is our race, and I don't think it's fair that they get this thing that I don't just because of this thing that I can't change. And at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, the people who are going to need that affirmative action are in the working class. And the working class is made up disproportionately of minority and marginalized groups. So at the end of the day, when you are doing actions which support the working class, they also support those other groups in tandem because they disproportionately make up that class of people. So when talking to left-wing people, it's very important not to crap on the values, not to crap on what we're trying to achieve, because <laughs> that's the kind of way you make enemies, right? And people don't really want to listen to you or take you seriously type of thing, particularly on the left, because our values and our principles are so important to us, right? And if you're coming in and you're shooting on them, not exactly going to be conducive to a good conversation. So understand their values are important to them, just like they're important to you. And you honestly probably share the same values. So it's about making the conversation about your shared values and how we can best achieve them rather than shooting on another person or trying to say that you're bad, you don't understand, you're not fighting hard enough or you're not doing the right things to further the fight type of thing. Yeah, and it's important to remember we're all on the same side. We all want the same things by and large. And we understand that when it comes to my least reducing harm currently in society, we really need to put our differences aside on the left and focus on the amount of harm that Republicans in particular, not so much yet, at least conservatives maybe here in Canada or in the UK or other parts of the world, but certainly the Republicans are doing a huge amount of damage with the power that they do have. So the most important thing to remember is that we're fighting to reduce harm right now in our current political climate. And the way we do that is by taking on a large number of these social conservative policies head on. But before we end this episode, I do want to talk a little bit about something that I think I may have been wrong about when it came to one of my 
disagreements with left-wing orthodox thinking. And one of those things in particular is the use of the word cisgender. Generally, when I would talk to other left-wing people, I would use the word pretty liberally. But when I talk to kind of like normie people, I won't use the word because they they don't understand that it's a word for an academic context, for a scientific context. It's not like you can just say that people who aren't trans in a scientific or academic context, oh, they're just normal. You, you, you can't do that, right? That's not the way scientific language works. That's not the way academic language works. You need to have another category to frame against the descriptive category that you're using, which in the case of trans people to, you know, people who aren't trans, it's trans people and cisgender people. I would usually not use that word when describing people who aren't trans in discussion with normie people, people who aren't politically engaged, because again, they don't understand the word. They don't understand that's academic word type of thing. And then of course, pe people on the right like to take this word and then of course, like go crazy with it, which has, I guess, happened. And in a way, this is what I mean by, I think that I was wrong about the use of this word is because now... <laughs> The use of this word, the use of the word cisgender, triggers right-wing people so much that it's hilarious. Elon Musk recently went and lost his mind and tried to label it as a slur. My favorite, though, was good old Jordy. And I guess I'll do my, my Jordy impression where it, I think he tweeted out something like, he's like, just try and call me cisgender to my face. Just try it and see what happens. And I'm like, where are you, Jordy? I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming to call you cisgender right to your face. Tell me where your coordinates are, and I will race over there. So maybe I was wrong, because the use of this word now has the ability to trigger conservatives into the point where they kind of go crazy and look completely ridiculous as a result. Man, what a clown, Jordan Peterson. And I think with that, that'll bring us to the end of our episode. Again, unfortunately, not going to do a feel-good story this time because I just looked at my recording time and this is on track to be one of the longest episodes ever. So in order to maintain my own sanity and get this out on a reasonable time, we're going to have to shut it down there. And with that, I want to thank you guys for watching. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Comrade Cast. And until next time, this has been Comrade signing off for now. You guys take care.